I am delighted to be joined this morning by UConn Associate Professor of Journalism, Marie Shanahan, as we're talking this morning about the role of social media in politics. Marie, good morning. Thanks for joining me today. And this seems to have been even more of an issue, say, over the last four or five years, hasn't it? Yes, I think it, I think it definitely has. Just because the, the American public, they want to talk, and social media gives them an easy opportunity to do that. Is it any different in politics than it is around town and on the street? More people are using social media in various forms, it seems, every day. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times the social media platform has really become our public square. Um, and it's interesting because this the public square is owned by these private companies. It's owned by Twitter. It's owned by Facebook. And so we're we're sort of forced to go through these private companies to talk to each other. And, you know, they may not have the same sort of uh, values or ethics when it comes to, you know, uh, meaningful speech, I guess. <laughs> Marie, what's the role that you see that social media plays in shaping Americans' political opinions? Well, one thing is obviously the, 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 the platforms have tried to, you know, argue on the side of, you know, they just offer the platform to have the speech and they stay out of the way. But the problem is, is that their platforms are designed in ways to have algorithms that will surface content that you have an affinity for. So if you like something or keep looking at something, they're going to serve you more and more of that. So if you are the type of person to have, you know, a particular point of view, you're more likely on social media to get stuck in, you know, what they call like an echo chamber. You're going to see more of those kinds of views. And therefore, that's not necessarily a great thing for democracy because you're not seeing views on the other side or the views on the other side that you do hear about are usually being disparaged in some way. So it's not like, you know, I, I started my career as a newspaper journalist and we, you know, knew, uh, you know, when we were laying out the front page, we you took pains to think about what are things that people should know and perhaps it's something they wouldn't have sought out themselves. Social media and just the Internet in general allows us all to search for exactly what we're looking for, and we might never be exposed to anything else. So that's not great for, for learning how to listen or learning how to understand other sides. Yes, you took an interesting career path. You won awards as a reporter and editor at the Hartford Current before joining the UConn faculty. Why the career shift? <laughs> well, part of it was, uh, you know, when I graduated from UConn, we didn't really have the Internet yet. So when I started my career at The Current, I discovered, you know, it was AOL dial-up back then, and I was just sort of fascinated by the fact that you could deliver information in this way and you could communicate that way. So I left my, my reporting job on the city desk, which is a pretty good job, and I moved over to the website where it was kind of lonely and alone, um, but I, it seemed like a place for growth. And, you know, since that time, which is probably about 1999, you know, obviously it just exploded. And this is the way that we communicate today. So, you know, I feel like I've sort of seen it from the beginning. And one of the things that I had to deal with when I was a, an editor at the Harford Current online was to deal with people's online comments that, you know, the current made a space at the bottom of every news story where people could just comment on how they felt about the article that they just read. And those comments were not, they weren't vetted like letters to the editor. They were just sort of there and they caused a lot of problems because the the current in all news organizations all internet service providers are protected by um if you've heard this law called section 230 
of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And what that law says is that if you are an Internet service provider, you are not responsible, you are not liable for the third-party content that appears on your site. So you can host a space for people to, to talk, to, to post things, but you're not responsible for the content in those areas. So we did not, we didn't moderate comments because we didn't, first of all, we didn't have the, the energy or the manpower to do so, but also just because if we did edit them, it would, the law basically made us liable for them if we touched them. So we just left them alone. And you've seen news organizations over the years, they've just eliminated comments because they have become so troublesome. They either, people either attack, sometimes attack the people who are mentioned in the article, they'll attack the news organization, they'll attack the journalists. And a lot of times the, the stuff that they're saying is false and untrue and defamatory, but it sort of is left there to fester. And I don't, you know, that's not good for democracy either, that, that you know, sort of falsities and attacks and untruths are allowed to sort of stay around. And obviously as a journalist, I'm a big proponent of free speech. I, you know, that is something that I, that I strongly believe in. But it gets to the point where these private companies are allowing speech to fester in such a way that it is causing harm. And so we have to figure out a way forward because, you know, I don't think that people are going to stop talking to each other on the Internet and that these public places where people can talk, they're not going away. So we have to figure out a way to talk to each other better and, and also figure out a way where if, if, if you are yelling fire in a crowded theater, that that speech shouldn't remain there. And this topic is ripped out of today's headlines. So does it become an object lesson? Does it become a lesson plan issue for you and your journalism classes where you discuss the role of social media in politics? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not just in politics, but sort of in all facets of democracy and American culture. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that as you know, if you're a news organization, I mean, you're, you're like you're on the radio, so you have a bigger platform. You're able to amplify ideas. Online, you know, there used to be a time where I couldn't reach a large audience unless I could get on your show, right? Unless I could get my article, you know, my letter to the editor published, you know, in the in the local newspaper or the the major national newspaper. Nowadays, everyone can sort of has their own audience and can build upon it on their own. But if if we're not thinking about these things sort of responsibly, thinking about your the speech that you're using and, and what you're doing with it, and whether you should amplify those ideas, I mean, one of the arguments that people have nowadays is that it's not just social media to blame. Like you can blame the mainstream media too, the mainstream news media for amplifying those kinds of ideas and giving, always giving attention to the thing that's the shiniest, that's the most outrageous, you know, to the, to the most opinionated thing, um, as opposed to sort of that, soft, that softer, calmer middle, which nobody gravitates to. Like the thing that gets attention is the, the shiny thing that's yelling at you. Well, the headline today, of course, is what happened at the Capitol back on January the 6th, the insurrection. To what extent was that event a product of social media? Well, I think there's been, you know, I've been reading a lot and, and seeing what the, the, a lot of the researchers in this area have been saying that really it has been a, like a slow burn. Like it, it wasn't something that sort of just suddenly happened. It has happened over time. I mean, I talk about my, my time as an online editor when I was at the Hartford Current and the comment section was, you know, this was back in 2008, was, is part of this, the sort of the simmering anger, you know, underneath on the internet that you could see that suddenly unleashed itself, you know, in person. And that's the thing is that, you know, online speech, you think it doesn't matter. You think it's, you know, a bunch of 
people in their basements, you know, or middle-aged teenagers, you know, just yelling at each other. But no, I mean, the feelings that you have when you are publishing online, those absolutely can translate into real life. And but what's good is, what is good about social media and bad about it at the same time is that it can tap into the power of the crowd very quickly, that you can use it as an organizational tool, that you can use it as a tool for generating awareness, that you can use it as an alternative press. So if you're not happy with how your local media is covering your issue, you can, you know, you can do your own basically reporting on it and, and publication and communicating it out there. So what social media is good for, and it can get attention for, you know, good social change and, you know, give attention to, to issues that, that need, you know, that you feel need attention, it can also cause extremism. It can cause radicalism because, again, people get trapped in these echo chambers where that's all the information that they're consuming. Then they're organizing. Then they're generating more awareness about it. And then you saw what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. The Washington Post claimed that President Trump had 20,000 lies in his presidency. What responsibility do the social media companies have to regulate truth versus fiction on their sites? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Think about it. As a, you know, as a journalist working for a news organization, you're, and you're on the radio, for example, you're liable for, the, for those lies. People start saying horrible things on your show. Like if I say something defamatory right now on your show, you're also responsible for it. So you have sort of an ethical and professional responsibility to keep the record straight and correct the record. Whereas these social media companies, partially because of that law that I mentioned, Section 230, they are not liable. So there has to be pressure put on them by us, by societies, basically saying, there's no standards. Why is there no standards? Or your standards don't match up with what we want the standards to be. And obviously there's arguments on both sides. Some people feel that it should just be a free-for-all, that free speech means free in every single way. And then other people believe that what, what free speech means is responsible speech and that it has to be helpful for democracy and not hurtful. Um, and so these are private companies. So unless there's some sort of regulation, and that's you know, this is stuff that's been brought up before. I mean, President Trump used to complain about Section 230, which was odd because that was really what allowed him to say whatever he wanted on Twitter. Um, that there, I think that the, you are going to see a lot of debate nowadays about what happens next. And even yesterday, Facebook put out a call because obviously their their corporate image is, is damaged partially because of all of this, saying that misinformation about, for example, the COVID-19 vaccine, that they were going to really uh, tamp down on it and that put a lot of moderation into Facebook and that they're going to remove falsities that they find on Facebook about COVID-19 and the vaccine. Now, whether or not they can actually do that, I don't know. The problem is, is that speech at scale, which is where we are, where you have billions of people all talking, that is a really hard thing to moderate. Well, you talked earlier about Section 230, and Trump was calling for the repeal of Section 230, which shields those companies from legal liability over what their users say or do. In your opinion, is repealing Section 230 a good idea? I don't know if part of the reason when Section 230 came into effect, the reason that they it came in the way that it did was so that the internet could grow. I mean, think about it. back in 1996. You know, it was AOL and the Internet was very small and they saw sort of this new space that could grow if it was unencumbered by too many regulations. If you made, 
them, if you made the Internet as liable as like a newspaper or a radio station or a TV station, that it wouldn't be able to grow in that area. But, but we couldn't predict what would have happened. So now that we have this hindsight and we see what has happened, I think there has to be some changes. Whether you strip, I mean, if you stripped it away completely, no one would publish anything on the internet because no, no one would feel comfortable being able to host it. And it would go back to the way, kind of like it was before with just newspapers um, and having these gatekeepers that are just in control of the information. No one's going to stand for that, right? You can't put the genie back in the bottle. But at the same time, I think there has to be some regulation that if, if, if the speech that you're allowing on your platform causes harm, you need to be responsible for that. Just like you would be on a radio like I would be if I was publishing a newspaper. Marie, do you think social media has become more of a factor during the pandemic? And I say that because there's been a fair amount of people who have been either quarantined or they didn't go to work and the like, and they had more time to sit around the house and play on their devices and say stuff that maybe they wouldn't have had time to do if they were going about their normal life like they were over a year ago. You know, that's very interesting. It'd be interesting to see if, if the statistics on that. But I do think we're all spending a lot more time online, whether you're leaving comments or reading comments or just, you know, watching Netflix. Um, everyone is spending a lot more time online. You know, there's still a large, I wrote a book a couple of years ago um, that talked about comments and like who posts them, who, who reads them. And there is still a disconnect in terms of participation in equality. Some people don't feel comfortable commenting publicly in a public space like that for whatever reason. And then other people are feeling more comfortable and more open and, you know, attaching their real name to it. They don't have to, you know, they don't even want to be anonymous anymore. So it, it, it is an interesting idea there that perhaps more people are commenting now because you have these social media platforms and you can say what you want um, and, and find people who think the same way you do. Marie, how do you see the role of social media and the White House changing in the Biden administration? Obviously, Twitter was a big deal with the Trump administration. I'm not seeing as much stuff on Twitter these days from Joe Biden. No, not at all. And I don't, I, you know, I've read some things that perhaps that's deliberate to sort of bring the bring the heat down a little bit. Um, and, you know, they're having the regular press briefings and things like that. I mean, it's interesting because Twitter is a place where all like all journalists hang out there. Um, and it really felt like a place that was for journalists, all the journalists talking to each other and reading what each other is saying. Um, and so getting that attention, I mean, what Trump, Trump was really good at getting attention, and he was a relentless communicator. I mean, think about how many tweets he put out there. And knowing that all the journalists and people are on there, he was able to capitalize on more and more attention. Um, I don't know what the Biden administration is going to do, if they're going to try and go back to, you know, pre, pre-2016 type of use of social media. Um, but, you know, it is an effective way of reaching a public. So, you know, we'll sort of have to just wait and see. We're only, you know, about a month in. What do you think the effect will be of his tweet history when it comes to the impeachment trial that begins today? I think that they are going to draw on it a lot. Um, it's funny because I have a, a lesson that I have with my students about having them look at their own social media history and what is out there publicly um, there is a, you know, there's this idea that, you know, you've heard cancel culture where people will dig into people's social media history and, and use something that they posted 10 years ago against them. Um, I definitely think you'll see that happening with Trump in terms of the argument of how he, you know, did he did he radicalize his, his base to cause this attack? Um, I think there will there'll be a lot of arguments and pulling out things that he said on Twitter. 
And turning back the clock just a little bit here, Marie, I was really intrigued by the crash course for the 2020 U.S. presidential and local elections that you've organized with your students. Tell me about that and what the goal of that crash course was. Oh, uh, thank you very much for reading. Yes, my uh, I have a small I had a small group of students where they we wanted to publish an email newsletter, which is you know another way for you to reach an audience nowadays because of the internet. And so they were very interested in the in the run up to the election. So um, we put together a weekly summary of uh, of the issues that were that, ma- that mattered basically to college students to young people um, in the 2020 election, and methodically sort of went through each one of those issues each week. Um, for about 14 weeks of the semester, um, and so the, and obviously the election was was unlike any other. Um, so it, it was a, it was an interesting and fun activity. Is that still being published? No. Well, the semester ended, as you know, right in December, and so uh, I, I am actually not teaching it this semester. But I'm hoping, you know, I like to bring it back each, you know, every year we have an election in the fall, so it's a great class to teach and and give students a real, you know, they have to work on deadlines. You know, we, we publish to a real audience. You know, they can't make mistakes, um, and I hold them to a high standard. So hopefully you'll see it again next fall. Well, a really good way to get that student body involved in learning how to be a more intelligent voter. Marie, this was a lot of fun, very interesting stuff. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Associate Professor of Journalism at UConn, Marie Shanahan, our guest on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.